And you can be seated for a moment. You can take your Bibles out so that you have them ready at hand. We'll be turning in just a moment. But let me ask you a question. Uh, Have you ever been driving along, usually between cities, kind of out in the country, air, uh, and, and you pass a sign that says Vista Point? And then there's a little turn off for maybe just a little a wide spot in the road where you can take a break from your journey that you're on, a break from your driving and stop and see a beautiful well, vista and, and enjoy uh, maybe some information about a historical uh, place that you can see or just enjoy a portion of what God has created. Well, we are going to get off the road for a little bit of our journey through Mark's gospel and enjoy a vista point in the scriptures. Now, we're going to take a break for a few weeks from our series in the gospel of Mark, probably just through the the end of the year, but we're going to be staying with the the timeline, with the events that we've been looking at in Mark, Um, but we're going to, to look at them from some uh, a different vantage point and look at something a little beyond that. In Mark 6, remember we recently looked at the the miracle of Jesus feeding 5000 people in verses 30 through 44 of of Mark. And remember that it was actually more like 15,000 people when you count the women and the children that were there. But remember that I mentioned that if Jesus could feed 15,000 or 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish, it may well have been five million people. It wouldn't have mattered. The point is that Jesus, as God, was able to multiply those loaves and fishes and, and any other needed type of provision as far as it needs to be multiplied, and he was able to do that because he is God. Then in verses 45 through 52 in Mark, we saw Jesus reveal and demonstrate his deity again in a very dramatic way by walking on the surface of the wind-ravaged Sea of Galilee to rescue and to comfort his disciples who, remember, were having a hard time uh, rowing against the, the wind that had come up, the storm that had come up and was assaulting their boat. And you'll remember that at the end of that episode that Mark mentions that the disciples were utterly astounded at Jesus' power because they had not really understood the display of his power in the multiplying of the bread and the fish. Now in that message, (coughs) it's been a couple of weeks ago now, I made a brief reference to John and to his record of the feeding of the 5,000 and some of the extra material that John gives. And, and what I didn't mention is really, I don't think, the extent of that extra material compared to, to Mark's account of it. Because John includes a whole subsequent discourse of Jesus, a teaching of Jesus that he gives on this subject, and it's one of the most important teachings that Jesus gives. It's also one of the longest that Jesus gives. In fact, chapter 6 of John is the second longest chapter in the New Testament. And as I 
read through uh, that chapter in preparing for our study of, of Mark, I decided that, you know, this is really an appropriate place for us to pull off from our journey and to enjoy this, this teaching, be challenged perhaps by this teaching of Jesus before we get into the next section of Mark's gospel. When we get back to Mark's gospel, we'll be beginning a new section of, of Mark's record. So this morning we're going to begin a look at a good chunk of chapter 6 in John. So if you would turn, if you haven't already, to John chapter 6, we'll be looking at, like I said, a good portion of it. Today we're going to look at and we're going to just read verses 22 through 34 of John chapter 6. So let's stand together as we hear God's word and, and follow along as it's read. John chapter 6, and we'll be reading, I'll be reading verses 22 through 34. Hear God's word, people of God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your word. We thank you that you have given to us Christ, the true bread. We pray that as we begin a look at this chapter, we pray you would bless us. We pray that you would bless us by allowing us to hear and to understand your word. Bless the one who preaches and bless us who hear, O God, and may you be glorified through it all. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If we were to boil all of this down into one statement, it would be something like this. 
God the Father has given the Son, Jesus Christ, the true bread from heaven. Believe in him. And that will be true just not only for what we see this morning, but for all that we will see in this chapter. Now, to sort of see this as it fits in with what we've been looking at in Mark, if Mark had chosen to incorporate this teaching that we're, we just read and that we're going to look at, if he would have incorporated that into his gospel, it would have come right where we left off. We would still be looking at this uh, passage or a passage similar to it this morning. It takes place the next day. So the timeline is sort of of this that the previous day, Jesus and his disciples intended, remember, to have a time away. The, 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 the disciples had come back from the, the mission, the evangelistic mission that Jesus had sent them on. They had come back. Jesus said, let's go away uh, and, and rest. And so they intended to do that. But the crowds caught wind of it, and they followed them. And so Jesus, seeing the crowds and having compassion on them, he taught them for a good portion of the day. And then in the late afternoon of that day, there was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. After that, that evening, after Jesus perceived, remember, that the crowd was intending to come and make him king by force because they had proclaimed him to be the prophet that Moses had spoken of, because of that, remember, Jesus sent the disciples away in the boat, and he stayed behind to dismiss the crowd. And having done so, he went out and prayed. And it was that night then that the storm came up and Jesus walked to the disciples on the sea. Now it is the next morning and that these, these events and, and this discourse uh, occur. And we're going to begin by looking at Jesus rebuking the pursuing crowds. So now we come back to the crowds, the ones who had been present uh, for the feeding. Those who had been fed by Christ, who had seen this great miracle. Verses 22 through 24 there that we read tell us that the next day that the crowd, they've been waiting for Jesus. Um, and, And remember that he had sent them away. Some had gone, some perhaps had stayed. But they know one thing. They know, Mark or John tells us, that the disciples left in a boat. And they know that there was only one boat. And they know that Jesus on the shore had been with his disciples. But they know that the disciples left in the boat, but they can't find Jesus. They don't know where he is. And they do know that there was not another boat that he could have taken. So maybe we missed something. Maybe... During the night, Jesus walked around the lake and got past us somehow. Of course, they don't consider the possibility that Jesus walked across the lake uh, to get somewhere. But now they find, Mark, or John tells us, some, some boats that have come from the city of Tiberias, which is on the western shore there of the, the Sea of Galilee. They've come over. And so they get into these boats and head off to Capernaum, another town on the western shore, the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where the disciples have gone. Verse 25 tells us that when they found him, that is Jesus, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Capernaum is not a 
a large town. It's, it's an important town in an important place on a trade route, but it's not a big town. And so they, they easily find Jesus there. Uh, Mark tells us that, and I do mean Mark this time, that when they landed that they immediately recognized him. So they ask him, when did you come here? An interesting question. You would think that they would have asked, how did you get here? We didn't see it, but they're not thinking that way. They suppose it was, like I said, they just, they just missed him. And notice here that they, they call him rabbi, teacher. They still have a low view of Christ even after what they had seen. And Mark tells us that when Jesus comes there to Capernaum, that the people who are there in the town, that they start bringing all of their sick to Jesus. John tells us that these people are looking for Jesus for another reason. And so they ask, when did you get here? And interestingly, as it happens quite often, Jesus doesn't answer that question. But he wants to get to the important issue. And he points out the fact that it's an important issue by this formula that he uses at the beginning by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, listen, this is important. He's wanting to focus their attention on what he is about to say. And what he says is he rebukes them. He rebukes them for their blindness. He rebukes them for their their hardness of heart. And he says to them there in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They're not coming because they're looking for Jesus as Jesus, but they're looking for the 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 to be filled again. They're looking for that. And people will go as these have, and others will go to people go to great lengths and jump through many hoops to try to gain something from religion that they want. And many do that today, don't they? And we have to understand that that is futile in regard to Christianity because the hoops that one might jump through to receive what Christianity offers are too high for us to jump through anyway. And the prize to be won in Christ is not won by us jumping through hoops, but by resting and by trusting. God's blessings cannot be leveraged. We need to just have faith in Christ. And the people's faith here is very misplaced, or their attention, their focus is very misplaced. Now, the Bible tells us that some believe on account of signs, signs that they see. And remember in John's gospel that John always talks about signs. He doesn't talk about miracles uh, because he's wanting to emphasize the fact that every miracle that Jesus does is a sign. It's pointing to something. It's drawing one's attention to something beyond the miracle, to Jesus, to his authority. We see, we've even seen that in the book of Mark, uh, to, to his acts, to his words, to his teaching. But some believe on account of the signs they see, and, and while faith that is based on the signs is not perhaps the, the highest form of faith, which is faith that rests purely and simply on Jesus and who he is, but it's certainly better than what these people,
people possessed, which was merely a desire for more physical food. Jesus is saying, you aren't seeking me for the kingdom of God. You're not seeking the kingdom. You're not even seeking me because of the signs, because of what I've done that points to other things. He says, you are seeking an easy meal. You are seeking things that, that fill and fulfill and satisfy your physical desires. And we see that today, don't we? In fact, if you were here for the, the American Gospel event, that whole film was talking about that sort of error in the church because that's the epitome of, of the essence of the prosperity gospel that's taught in so many churches today. That you can get something, physical something, from Jesus if you will come, if you have faith. But notice here that Jesus sees through their their, their facade. He knows their reasons for following him with, and seeking him. They know that or he knows that with perfect, omniscient clarity. Jesus was not fooled. Jesus is not fooled by their zeal or their great efforts expended to pursue Jesus. And he is not fooled today by those who pursue Jesus for false reasons. And he will not be fooled on the last day. Matthew 7.22 says, On the last day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not do all of these things? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Similarly, many will say, Lord, didn't we talk like Christians and go to church like Christians? Didn't we attempt to, to integrate you in with our other beliefs? Didn't we belong to the right political parties? Didn't we seek out signs, Lord? And didn't we, we know our catechism? Didn't we know our confessions? Didn't we know our Bible? Lord, we did the right things, and we avoided the wrong things. We didn't, we didn't drink or chew or go with girls that do. We didn't go to R-rated movies. We didn't sleep with our girlfriends or boyfriends. We didn't cheat on our spouses. We made sure that our kids were sitting in the pews at church every week, and we were there, and we put our check in the bag, and we signed up for potlucks. Didn't we do everything that Christians do? Didn't we look like Christians enough? And Jesus will look at many people like that on the last day and say, I never knew you. Because of all those things, they missed Christ. They missed believing in Christ, that he has come from the Father, that he has come to live and to die that we might be forgiven. You did these things, but you were seeking those things. You weren't seeking me. 
Let me pause for a moment and ask you a question this morning. Why do you follow Jesus? Why are you here? Are you here out of love for God because of a a, a humility that the Spirit gives to you to recognize that you have a need for Christ in order to see the salvation of your soul and to see Christ exalted? Or are you here because it's the thing to do? Are you here because it's what we've done for the last X number of years? Are you here because if I come to church, if I show myself as a good Christian, God will give me X? See, these here, instead of seeing in the bread the sign pointing to Christ, they had only seen in the sign the bread. Like the disciples we learned of back in Mark, these people did not understand about the loaves. They didn't get what Jesus was doing by feeding the 5,000. The crowd was here, was moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. And they were seeking more of that. And Jesus rebukes them for it. And he rebukes them for it because he pities them, because he, he loves them. Because he is concerned about people. Remember in Mark 6, in the the subject of the, or in the event of the feeding of the 5,000, that we read that he had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Because he cared, and he says this, because he cared too much to be too polite or to care about about hurting their feelings, to worry about offending them, because they needed to know what they were missing out, or that they were missing out. And we should be the same when we know people, and I think we all probably know people, who are following Christ like these, with wrong motives or, or fooling themselves, even in making a profession, we do them no favors by keeping silent. Rather, speaking the truth in love, as Paul says, we should do as Christ did and expose hypocrisy, risk bruising a conscience in order to save a soul. Especially, that is an essential and necessary work for ministers. Like a watchful bank teller, we not only accept the genuine, but we must be willing to expose the counterfeit. Now let's notice that as Christ rebukes them for their carnal and misplaced pursuit of him, that also Jesus secondly reorients their physical mindset. He doesn't just give them the rebuke and then leave it at that. But he reorients their thinking, and he does it at the beginning of verse 27. He goes on to instruct them. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Our priority, our purpose, even in pursuing Christ, must never be for the physical or the emotional or the mystical. Like I said, there's a whole sector of the church that has that exactly backwards. They say, come to Christ and you can have 
health. You can have wealth. You will never be sick. You will never lack for anything. But what does the Bible say about those very things? In regard to health, yes, you may have good health. Some are blessed with good health, but you'll only have it for a while. As for man, the psalmist said, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. That's us. And wealth. Even if you get wealth, and the Lord blesses some people with great wealth, but if you get it, it's fleeting. Remember that it's fleeting. Remember, it's not the riches that are a problem. It's the deceitfulness of riches. It's the love of riches. And it, riches, like us, is here today and gone tomorrow. Proverbs 23.5 says, When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and flying like an eagle toward heaven. It's gone. You work so hard to store up things that you will leave to another person when you die. Because no matter how healthy you are, no matter how health conscious you are, your health will fail. And when it does, your wealth will stay behind. And Jesus says to them here, Don't wear yourself out pursuing temporary things. Don't labor, don't work for food that perishes. That food that I gave you in the wilderness, even gave miraculously, it was just food. And it perishes. Already you're back hungry again. But, he says, labor for the food that endures. And endures to eternal life. And what is that? Verse 27 says that it is that which the Son of Man will give you, which Christ gives. Now they hear that, and like many, when Jesus says, work for, they think, well, let's look at what they think. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do? Sound like Sounds like the rich young ruler, doesn't it? What must we do to be doing the works of God? What what law works should we be doing? What duties from the commandments must we be doing? What is the list of rules, Jesus, that we must follow, of the good things, the good works that we must do in order to be satisfying God? And again, this is the question of many in the world. And sadly, many in the church. And, and it is the assumption of many that there is a list of do's and don'ts that if we come out on the good side of those do's and don'ts, that we're good with God. What is your new law, Jesus? Now we know because you're not like the God of the Old Testament, but you are Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and because of that, your rules will be likewise. So what what should we be doing, Jesus? You know, Jesus, that nobody's perfect, and so you certainly will 
lower your standards of righteousness. You will include rules that are largely concerned with, with motive and with, with effort and with a, a good human definition of love. Surely that's what you would want us to do. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Well, Jesus responds to them powerfully by, first of all, changing their plural works to a singular work. There's only one. There's only one thing that must be done, he says. Verse 29, Jesus answered, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Here's what God wants. Here's what God requires, that you believe in Jesus Christ, the one that he has sent to redeem those that do. That is the only way to gain the food that endures to eternal life. And it's not really even a work. It's not a a list of commandments. It's not a moral code. It's not a system of weighing good and, and, and bad. It's not a merit system. What God wants is a matter of faith. It is giving your whole heart in faith and trust over to another to save you, recognizing that you cannot save yourself. The food that endures to eternal life is the eternal bread of life. And now Jesus begins to really reorient this whole discussion and begins to move it towards where it's going to end up in a very a glorious direction we're going to see. There is a food that only satisfies temporarily. And that's what they had received and that's what they're looking for. That food is, is not to be the focus of a relationship to Christ. But there is another food. There is a food that Jesus talks about here that endures to eternal life. There's a better bread. There's a a food that lasts forever and causes the possessor of that food to live forever as well. And this bread is what Jesus offers He offers it because of who he is. Verse 27 says, On him God the Father has set his seal. God has appointed him. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, he has appointed him. He has given him the the authority and the ability to give this bread. Think back to, to John, earlier John uh, chapter 5 and verse 26. Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and to give that life to whom he will. And notice that that life, eternal life, here and throughout Scripture is always, always, always a gift, a free gift given by Christ. It cannot be earned by you. 
It cannot be forced, it cannot be coerced, it cannot be leveraged, but it is freely given. And now this this confusion between physical food and the true spiritual food which Christ alone gives, now isn't that, that's almost a, a, an exact parallel, isn't it, to Jesus' discussion earlier in John's Gospel to the Samaritan woman. There's a lot of parallels between these two. There as well, Jesus began by pointing to the inability of the physical to, to last or to give spiritual refreshment. Remember he said to her, whoever drinks of this physical water, of this water will thirst again. Here he says, don't labor for food which perishes. There, as here, Jesus points to something far better, which has far-reaching effects, even giving eternal life. To the woman at the well, he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. And here he calls it the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And a final parallel is that here, as there, the ones who hear this just still don't understand. What did the woman say after Jesus explained that all to her? She said, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty, so that I won't have to come here to draw water. She blows it. She's thinking about physical water. And here, in very similar words, the people in verse 34 say, Sir, give us this bread always so that we don't have to go buying bread. You can give us bread that just lasts. You're saying you can. In both cases, they they revert back to the physical and say, this is great, it would be good not to have to keep working for water or working for bread. If you can provide provide it to our ease, that's wonderful. I will take that. I will chase you across the Sea of Galilee for that. But Jesus has shown them the way. He has shown them the true way to eternal life. He has turned their attention from earthly things to heavenly things, to spiritual things. He's showed them that. But it is a truism that heads turn very slowly when they are attached to stiff necks. And that's what they have. Let, that be, let this be a, a reminder of what we in the church, corporately and individually, need to be doing. We need to be turning people's attention as we speak to them. At times we have to be turning our own attention from all of this peripheral stuff to the things that are needful, the things that are essential. We have to stop ourselves and help other people to stop this focus on what we call felt needs, the things that I feel are important to me, and to point them towards the answer to their real need. Because the need of people, the need of you and I, 
the true, great, central, highest need of the world, of our neighbors, of ourselves, is not for peace on earth, or a comfortable situation, a warm and emotional mystical experience, an enlightenment or the attainment of some inner peace or a Christian nation or eliminating poverty or drugs of good health and financial wealth of a good marriage, not even for physical bread. But the need of the world, the need of our neighbors, the need of ourselves is peace with God, is forgiveness of sins is that we be reconciled with God. That is to say, the need, the real need of mankind is Jesus Christ. And when the church, any church, lets any of the things from that first list crowd out the things on the second list, they've departed from the message of Christianity. They have departed from the message of Christ, even here in this passage. But Jesus, Jesus is starting here now to reveal to them something even more remarkable, more amazing than what they realize. Because he is not just saying to them, he is not just saying to us that he, Jesus, and he alone gives this eternal life-giving bread. But he is saying to them, look at verse 35. We didn't read it. We'll read it next week. He said to them, I am the bread of life. I am that which gives eternal life. And so beginning here, Jesus reveals himself as the true bread from heaven in verses 30 through 34. In verse 30, the crowd again demonstrate their misplaced hearts by seeking a sign. And they seek a particular sign. They had just been fed the day before with the, the, the bread of a miracle. But what they demand, and it is a demand the way it's worded here, if they are to believe in him, this is what you must do, Jesus. You must show us Another sign. That one wasn't enough. They had just, it's interesting, they had just asked what work they needed to do. Now they're telling Jesus what work he needs to do. Thus showing how far they are missing the true nature of faith. Verse 30 says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What can you show us, Jesus? What trick can you do that will, that will bring us the rest of the way? And they, they, like I said, they even have a ready suggestion. Jesus had recently given to them miraculous bread, so why this request that they give in verse 31? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The emphasis, I think, here is, is not on the bread part, but it's on the from heaven part. See, Jesus' miracle had been one of, of physical bread multiplied on that occasion. But God, through Moses, had given the people of God bread from no bread, bread from heaven. 
over the course of 40 years, as we read in our Old Testament reading. That'd be great, Jesus. Do that. And then we, we will believe in you. Repeat that. And then they, they quote scripture to Jesus. From Nehemiah 9.15, he gave, the bread from, gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so once again, Jesus has to correct their faulty, their earthly mindset and understanding. And what he reveals to them is this. What the Father gives through giving Christ is superior to what was given through Moses. Better than what we read in the book of Exodus. He starts by saying that Moses didn't give the people anything. He acted as God's agent. God told Moses what he, what God was going to do and related through Moses the means by which the people were to collect this miraculous bread from heaven, such as we read. But the real giver of the bread was not Moses. It was God. And, and even what was given through Moses in the Old Testament was only a sign. It was a sign that pointed to something further. In fact, the bread that Jesus gave to them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee the day before was also a sign that pointed to something further. The manna, the bread, was, was a type. The, the bread that Jesus used to feed the 5,000 was a picture of what? Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Or if you sneak a peek down to verse 41, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. The manna which was given, just as the bread that was given by Jesus, provided nourishment, it sustained the body, but what Jesus, the true bread, gives is something greater, so much greater. What is it? eternal life. Christ is the true bread. He came down from the true heaven and he gives true and everlasting life. He does. And that is Christ's message to us this morning. As we begin as we begin looking at this marvelous chapter, as he interacts here with these people, That's Christ's message. And he's just getting started on it. He is going to say some amazing things in this chapter. Some things that seem incredible. Some things that are hard. So hard that many of those that were gathered on that day hearing it will turn around and walk away and say, this is just too much. You have lost it, Jesus. You have gone over the line. This is not something we're willing to even think about or talk about. That's what we're going to see. But for this morning, let us take away this. Christ. Christ who bids you and I this morning to set our minds on the real need of ourselves and on others, 
to not be distracted by other gospels that are not really the gospel, but that teach that the gospel is the answer to all sorts of things that the gospel of the Bible is not the answer to. Let us take away Christ who bids us to do the one thing that we are required to do, and that is to believe in him whom God the Father has sent. Let us take away Christ who gives what Moses didn't give, what he couldn't give, but only anticipated, but that Jesus gives through himself, and that's eternal life. Let us take away from this Christ, who is the true bread from heaven. And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you sent your Son into this world to take our nature, to live a perfect life, and to die in order that we might live. We thank you that Christ has come, that he is the true bread from heaven, even as the manna fell and sustained the people in the wilderness. Let us rejoice in Christ who came down, was sent down from you, in order that we might be sustained unto eternal life. Let us rejoice in Christ. Let us leave this morning worshiping Christ and let us keep him in our minds and in our hearts throughout this week and what he is and what he has done, O God. And let us anticipate coming back and seeing more about what Jesus teaches us in this passage, these amazing truths for which we thank you. We thank you for your working through John the Apostle that we would have these things recorded. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who moved upon John that we might have these things. We thank you for that same Holy Spirit who dwells in us and illumines our hearts that we may understand these things. And we pray that we would understand to your glory. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.